This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Zephyr CMS. It's a modern cloud-based CMS system that's licensed only to agencies. You can find them at ZephyrCMS.com. More about this later in the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Chance. My guest today is Seth Godin. He is the author of 18, 19, 20, who knows, we're, we're, we've stopped counting. Maybe he hasn't. Maybe his publisher hasn't. I don't know. But these are books that have changed the way people think about marketing, think about business. They've been translated in 38 languages. You know, the dip, linchpin, purple cow, permission marketing. This is marketing. He's also the founder of the very innovative Alt MBA and the Akimbo podcast, one of the few podcasts me as a podcaster actually listens to. He's got a new book out called The Practice Ship Creative Work. So welcome back, Seth. Thank you, John. It's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. I've lost track, but this is at least the seventh or eighth appearance on the podcast for you. You you are probably up there amongst the leaders. In the pantheon. <laughs> and always one of my favorites. So um, let's just get right to it. Is there a way to do the work that you want to do? There's always a way to do the work. There might not be a way to get paid for it. And those are two different things. So I'm in favor of hobbies. I'm in favor of doing things you're passionate about. I think as soon as you show up to sell it to somebody, you have to make a promise. And you better be able to keep that promise. And there's, there's no guarantee that you are entitled to get paid for doing something that you think you should get paid for. It's based on the market, not based on you. So, so over your career, and I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let, I'm going to let you share the, the volumes of this answer. Have you passed on opportunities to do what you, to stick to doing what you, know, you thought was right? To stick what I thought was doing was right. Right for you. Yeah. So I think that we spend an enormous amount of time reverse engineering uh, the what we think we're passionate about. Right, like you run into a twenty-one-year-old. Oh yeah, I I was born to program in Perl, and I have to live deep into the Ruby on Rails thing because if you make me do something in Linux, I'm just going to hate that. That's not who I am. Well, wait a minute. None of the things you're talking about even existed when you were ten. When did it suddenly become who you are? No, what you did was you thought about what's the environment I would be in if I got picked for a thing, and I'm not getting picked, so I'm sad, but. You know, uh, you and I have talked about the summer camp that I helped run in 1990 that I still go back to. I believed for a very long time that the only thing that would make me happy was running that place. And I adjusted significant portions of my life around that goal. And once it became clear to me I couldn't do that and do the other things that I wanted to in life, I had to make a choice. And I got to tell you, simulating those feelings in a different world has actually enabled me to teach more people, cause more change to happen and have a different sort of life. Is it the same? No, but it's um, still works because what we want is a feeling. We don't want the specific. We make up the specific because we think it's going to get us the feeling. So, in the subtitle is the word creative. Um, and I think a lot of people, of course, have uh, their definition of what that means. Um, so what is creative work? Okay. So because there's a conspiracy to get us not to do creative work, 
creative work has been pigeonholed as something done by painters or maybe someone who writes a symphony. Um, that's ridiculous. Creative work is the human act of solving an interesting problem, doing something generous that might not work. That's it. Those three things. So if you're an HVAC person and you've got a client who is sweltering because everyone else has told them there's no room in their attic for a, a, an AC unit, and you figure out a clever way to use a different technology, that's creative work right. because it wasn't in the manual and no one did it before you got there. Um, if you come up with a way to adjust the pricing for a client who really needs what you do and they can't afford to pay you now and you both end up happy on the other end, that's creative work as well. And um, so I don't think we're running out of categories. I think we're running out of guts. So uh, you and I had a, a chat this weekend, this past weekend, um, and I want to bring up a couple of the things that, that we talked about. Uh, they obviously are in the book as well, uh, but they're some of my, my greatest hits. How's that from some of the That's things right. we talked about? Um, reassurance is futile. Yeah, this one really gets under people's skin because yeah. reassurance is, is so pleasant. You know, I'd like reassurance as much as the next person, but it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is reassurance is what happens when someone we trust tells us everything's going to be okay, when they are predicting the future on our behalf. And for five minutes, we're like, wow, that's so great to hear. And then we realize they don't know. No one knows. And so we need to be reassured again all the way until we get to the future. And the problem with that mindset is, number one, there isn't enough reassurance. Number two, it implies that the outcome is all that matters. The alternative is to refuse reassurance, to say, I don't know, and no one else does, and it doesn't matter because I'm going to do it anyway. This one, of course, will ring true probably for anybody who's sat in front of a blog or an empty sheet of paper or, heaven forbid, an author. Um, there's no such thing as writer's block. I love that one. <laughs> right. And um, so you've seen my little laser carved writer's blocks, which I made. You can't see them because we're on audio right now, but that's one and a half inch maple squares. And everyone has on one side, there's no such thing as writer's block. Writer's block is made up. No one gets plumber's block. No one gets talker's block. No one gets bicyclist's block. Uh, we made up writer's block because it's real, except it doesn't exist. It really means fear of bad writing, fear of, in, of unsuccessful creativity that we feel blocked because we don't have the guaranteed perfect answer. But everyone's got a bad answer. So if we start saying our bad answer is out loud, sooner or later, a good one's going to slip in. So I think we should just be honest with ourselves to say, I'm feeling blocked, but what that means is I can't guarantee I have an answer right now. But if you let me keep riffing, sooner or later, we'll come up with the best possible alternative. Uh, about 25 years ago, I read um, Julia Cameron's book, uh, um, the, uh, oh, now, you know what the book I'm talking Artist about. Artist Yeah, I'm just based on the title there. And and she had this thing called Morning Pages, and I started doing that. Um, and I remember, you know, her whole thing was don't think, just write. Um, it is just just blah, blah, blah on the page. And I started doing that, and I, I would a lot of times write nonsense. And then all of a sudden, something would magical would happen, and I'd think, oh, this is a good idea. And I think it's kind of that thought, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, morning, I do morning pages. Morning pages are misunderstood because people think they're supposed to be productive. Yeah. They're not productive. They're simply supposed to normalize the behavior that if it is normal for you to sit down and write 
down things, then it's not fraught anymore. And so if every single morning you sit down and write down anything, no one should ever see your morning pages. You should just throw them out the next day. You don't need to look back at them. That's the purpose is to get the blood flowing and to uh, de-stress the whole idea that you can be creative. Yeah, some of mine would frighten people, I'm afraid. Um, do do you plan to sell the blocks? Is that, yeah, well, is that, way, is that part of you know, something that's going to be back The only way to get the blocks in? is to buy 12 copies of the book. Okay. You get a block. You get these really cool packages that I made, six out of 12. And I would show them to your listeners, but they're on audio. And you get a set of uh, 52 uh, magic cards that I can't talk about except to say that they're magic. Nice. And you get some letter press. I just had so much fun making the swag. I couldn't stop myself. So I just kept making it. It it, it actually is quite fun. So um, so we'll have links in the show notes to where people can go and find all that good stuff. Since you're listening to this, maybe in your car or walking your dog, we'll make sure you can go find it. This is another one that I think trips a lot of people up and it probably is very related to reassurance. Um, all uh, criticism is not the same. Right. So it's all the same in the sense that it hurts our feelings. It's not the same in the sense that it's useful. And most of the criticism we get is of one of two types. Either it's from people who are bad at giving criticism. And just like you shouldn't eat food from someone who's bad at cooking, you shouldn't listen to criticism from someone who's bad at giving it. Or it's from someone who's very clearly saying, this one isn't for me. Right? Like I only speak um, Swahili. This comic wasn't funny. Well, they weren't funny because they were talking in a language you don't understand. That's not useful criticism. The criticism that's useful is from someone who it was intended for and who is good at giving criticism. When that person speaks up, we should take good notes and listen to what they say. Well, should we actually, are you saying we should actually go seek that and find that? Yes, we have to seek that out. So my book was called Trust Yourself. You can still see an excerpt at trustyourself.com. And my editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, persuaded me to change the title. Now, I could have insisted that the title was the title. It's my book. But then what's the purpose of working with Nikki Papadopoulos? You know, that she has seen more books, touched more books than I ever will. And I sought her out. That's why I didn't self-publish the book, so that I could have Nikki telling me how to make it better. How are skill and talent related or are they? Right. So, Again, the imprecision of language really gets in our way. Um, Question, was Larry Bird talented at basketball? The answer is no. Larry Bird simply took more shots and practiced more than people who had exactly the same amount of talent as he did, but he developed skill. And this is really good news. Because if you call someone who is skilled talented, you're insulting them because you're basically saying they got a free DNA shortcut. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is really energizing to say, talent doesn't show up in most things that people do, which is great because it means if you care enough, you can go get the skill. And I'll just give you one uh, anecdote that proves that I'm correct. If we look at uh, perfect pitch, which many people think of as a talent, which means that someone can identify or sing a note, if you just tell them the name of the note. A lot of people for a long time believed that that was a talent. You were born with it or you weren't. If we look at kids in China, they are many times more likely to have perfect pitch than 
kids in the United States. Therefore, you say, oh, well, then, of course, it must be a talent. It's genetic. However, if your parents emigrate from China and you were born in the United States, your odds of perfect pitch do not go up at all. It has nothing to do with your genes and everything to do with whether they speak Chinese in your house or not. Mm-hmm. They speak Chinese in your house. People are singing the language, not speaking it. You're more likely to uh, develop perfect pitch. It's a skill. Because the language is so tonal, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of skills, one of the ones that uh, you shared uh, w- with me was the, that attitudes are skills. Right. This is from our friend, the late Zig Ziglar. He was my teacher and a good buddy. Uh, it changed my life when he taught me that. So what does that mean? Okay. So let's agree that we like to be around people with attitudes that we call good attitudes. We like to be around people who are honest and funny and persevere and are persistent and hardworking and generous and see possibility. These are all attitudes. The question then is, is it possible in the next five minutes for you to model any of those, to be a little bit more of any of those things if you tried? Well, most people being honest would say, yeah, I could do that if I tried, which means it's a skill, which (laughs) means you can learn it, which means that with effort, you can have the attitude that you say you admire. Well, as long as we're on this, well, let me let me ask a follow up on that. Um, so, so it would certainly be true that negative attitudes, you know, crankiness, <laughs> cynicism. I mean, those sure. those are certainly uh, skills that people hone quite often as well, aren't they? That's right. I mean, you don't want to call them a skill, but you've chosen them. No yeah. one forced you to. I mean, you can't control whether you feel cranky, but if you feel cranky, you can control whether you share that with other people. And that's a choice. And because it's a choice, you have the power to do something about it. So as long as we're on the skill one, um, uh, I found this one sort of interesting. Good taste is a skill. Okay. So I started working on good taste when I was building this workshop, which led to the book. And I started looking online for a definition of good taste, and I couldn't find one. So I made one up. And my definition is good taste is knowing what your customers want five minutes before they do. And that feels pretty profound to me because it changes based on who your customers are. So if you like Kenny G, then good taste in jazz feels different than if you like Miles Davis, right? There isn't one universal standard. And the way we develop good taste, that skill, is by learning to see, by practicing it. So the famous Diane von Furstenberg, who was on the cover of Newsweek or Time in the 70s for inventing the wrap dress, apparently came out of nowhere, just invented this dress that millions of women started wearing. But that wasn't true at all, because she had been watching and guessing and thinking about women's fashion for a long time. And that dress was good taste. No one had seen it before she made it. And after she made it, everyone said, of course. And so a a lot of what you teach without calling it that, a lot of what's in your books and the things you run are teaching people instincts about what their market wants, which is another word for good taste. Well, there's so much um, opinion attached to what is good taste. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I struggle with. You use the example of Kenny G and uh, um, Miles Davis. And, and, you know, I think most people would, most people who enjoy music would would lean towards one or the other of those and say, you know, oh no, that's you know, you you don't have good taste if you listen to one and right. not the other. So, right. so, well, so I'm right in that 
you have better taste if you pick Miles Davis. However, <laughs> with the exception of two albums, if we leave those two out, Kenny G sold more records than Miles Davis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's completely local. It's local. And I have been in many countries as of you. And usually when I get into the cab and the radio is on, I don't like that music. Well, who has bad taste in that instance? Me or the cab driver? Well, clearly me, because I'm a visitor. And so we must begin with who's our smallest viable audience? Who are we here to serve? What is bringing them good taste look like? So a lot of entrepreneurs uh, struggle. I don't, but a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with the idea of perfectionism. What is perfectionism? It has nothing to do with perfect. Perfectionism is a way to hide because it feels like you get enormous amounts of deniability and plenty of room. Oh, well, you wouldn't want me to ship something that isn't good, would you? We're going to wait till it's perfect. No, that's not actually what you're saying. You know, if we look at Alexis, which by most measures is the most precision car in the mass market, if I look at any piece under an electron microscope, I will see enormous numbers of, quote, defects. But they're not defects because they don't affect its spec. They don't affect its function. And therefore, that car, because it meets spec, has quality. But it's not perfect, nor does perfectionism help us. That what we need to do is seek quality, which is simply figure out what spec is and meet it. So without this being a political question, um, how <laughs> it's going to be, but, you know, it seems like the world is a very divided place these days. Uh, people thinking uh, certainly their thoughts um, as you know, diverse as possible. You know, how does that, how does where we find ourselves culturally maybe um, impact kind of your idea of what creative work means? Okay. So, uh, the media profits by helping us think that we are divided. Uh, we agree on 99.9% of everything. And the media doesn't talk about that. Uh, the stuff we don't agree on is really important, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, voting matters, speaking up matters, leading matters, all of those things. I'm not minimizing them. But... We shouldn't minimize for a moment the impact media has on everybody all the time. And uh, it's been hijacked. So with that said, my definition of creative work, whether you are culturally conservative in that you want things to stay mostly the same, or if you are culturally an early adopter and you want things to change, creativity is still, is there a problem around you? That's interesting in the sense that it could be solved, that someone could crack it open by rethinking trade-offs. And the answer is, of course, right? That um, I don't think we should be extracting stuff from the ground, but fracking was a really creative solution within the boundaries of what was presented to the people who were trying to solve it. Um, once we explore solutions, we have to make a decision as a community about whether we want there to be earthquakes in Oklahoma or not, but that's something we that is separate from a creative problem was solved, right? Or a problem was solved with a creative solution. So no, I think that if we are counting on humanity, the only way forward is not by following the manual, but by writing the manual, by figuring out what's next. I'm curious if when you sit down to write a book, or maybe maybe when you finish a book, <laughs> do you come away thinking this is what I want people to do 
when they read this. Every once in a while, but because I'm a teacher from way back, most of what I'm doing is not writing about tactics. Yeah. What I'm writing about is worthwhile questions that we should ask each other. And so when I'm writing a book, my main goal is what will someone who read this book teach someone else? Mm -hmm. And so it's worth being in book format so they can share it with them. But even if they don't, that's fine with me. When I hear, well, um, you know, I got a call uh, more than 10 years ago. This guy said, I have two bosses. I'm in a matrix organization. And one of my bosses said, a lot of us here are talking about this book, Purple Cow. You should go read a copy. So I quickly ran out and got it and read it. And then I was in a meeting and my other boss was going on and on about Purple Cow. And I said to him, oh, it's a great book. I just read it. And he said, there's a book? <laughs> That's the goal. The goal is to change the culture. And whoever this person was who didn't know my name, who didn't know there was a book, got the joke. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put logs into the cabin of culture and say, people like us, we do things like this. We talk about things like this. And so that's what I'm thinking about when I write a book. So specific to the practice, what would you like people to read and then teach uh, from that book? That creativity is a choice and that it's more urgent now than ever, that it's a human act, and that it's not something that should be associated with shame or should. It is something that we can do if we care enough. And if we can support each other in that quest, acknowledging that it's hard, it feels to me like it will happen more often. All right, final question. Is there anywhere you want to invite people to? Um, you already shared that you've got these magic cards and these blocks that are available so people take certain actions. Are there, Just are there anything for else? Just for for There's only 400 of them. Um, go to trustyourself.com and I put everything there along with the sample. Awesome. Seth, always great to catch up with you. Really and uh, hopefully uh, the next time I'm, uh, I'm traveling through Hudson on the Hastings, I'll honk as I go by. And I can't wait till we're traveling again, sir. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> take care. Take care.